0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brian Scott, and today we'll be speaking with Dr. Catherine Mathers. Dr. Mathers is a sociocultural anthropologist at Duke University, and today we'll be discussing her most recent book, White Saviorism and Popular Culture, published earlier this year by Rutledge. Uh, welcome, Dr. Mathers. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, can you, so I guess I'll just start off. Um, so can you tell us, uh, a little bit about your background, um, and how this book came about, what made you interested in this topic, um, and kind of, uh, the process of, of research, researching and and writing.
0: Okay. Um, great. Yes. I'm going to give you the long story, um, which really begins with me at the University of Cape Town in the 1980s, uh, wanting to become a paleoanthropologist and super excited to study South Africa's um, human evolutionary uh, fossil path, uh, past. Um, But finding that though I absolutely loved studying archaeology and geology and anatomy and all that good stuff, it was very difficult to think about a career in that kind of scientific space, uh, during the eighties in South Africa. And I shifted my work to think about representation and the, what I would now know to call the cultural politics of representation. But at the time it was really a conversation amongst. Archaeologists and museologists about what our responsibilities were in telling the history and the cultural present, really, of South Africa. And I was lucky enough to be having those conversations during the transition from apartheid and increasingly moved my work from, you know, what I would consider natural science into more social research um, and was lucky enough to be able to do a uh, what was then an interdisciplinary honors thesis in South Africa that's a post-grad Thesis with uh, the Center for African Studies at UCT, um, which was an opportunity to really get disciplinary training as a sociologist while asking questions about representations, um, museum representations. In the case of that project, it was about how people understood the human evolution exhibits in museums. And this was a time in South Africa where. We were not allowed to teach, at least in in government schools, um, anything to do with evolution. There wasn't even a debate in South Africa. It was just not allowed. And so the museums were these interesting spaces where they were displaying these very famous seminal sort of type specimens um, of um, hominid fossils. And in some cases, managing to entirely avoid the word evolution. And that work really put me on track to think about the role of museums in education in lifelong learning and adult learning, uh, but also in sort of attitudinal sort of understandings and thinking about representation. Um, At a time when uh, increasingly South Africa was opening up to tourists, opening up to uh, the world post-apartheid and um, for a while at least museums were very much at the forefront of sort of thinking about how South Africa was representing itself to the world. Um, and I continued in this kind of work, um, interdisciplinary work of, um, I did a master's in both archaeology and sociology. And there, that was a kind of r- run to sort of do a museology master's. And there, I specifically studied barriers and access um, to museums in South Africa, thinking about um, a transformed audience for what was both explicitly and implicitly a white uh, set of institutions or a set of institutions for white people. Um, And so I really began that journey of thinking about um, access and the way stories were told about the past and what people needed to see in institutions like that. Um, And I really loved working in that world in museums um, and was scrabbling for quite a few years, working um, sort of freelance part-time for various museums in South Africa and the Museums Association. Um, and, you know, really an exciting time, of course, when we were writing uh, policy for sort of cultural heritage and preservation and trying to bring in all these different voices. Um, but as I looked around, sort of scrabbling for my funding and my contracts, and I would see this very typical, I think, um, story from. South Africa and Africa in general, um, I would see experts, quote unquote, with PhDs coming in and advising committees, advising on policy, advising museums, um, while the people on the ground doing the work were sort of not not always being listened to. Um, And I naively, I think now, decided to do a PhD. I was decided I needed a PhD um, and also felt strongly because I'd been doing so much quantitative work that I wanted to do qualitative research. And to me, having never studied anthropology, that was anthropology, that was social anthropology. And I also knew that I couldn't afford to do a PhD in South Africa where at the time there wasn't funding. Um, Most of the people I know who did PhDs Um, in South Africa itself, worked full time while doing that work. And I'd heard um, from a professor that I was a research assistant for that in America, you could get funding to do PhDs, or you could uh, teach and support yourself. And and also, because I was changing, in my mind, changing fields to anthropology, I wanted to do coursework because I hadn't done any master's coursework, it was a thesis-only master's, and that felt very lonely. And I amazingly managed on the back of sort of proposing a project that w- was really looking at how South African institutions were representing themselves to the world. Um, I was thinking specifically of places like Sharkaland, a sort of heritage, Zulu heritage site, cultural site, based on the old uh, film set for Shaka Zulu, places like Robin Island, which which wasn't quite open yet, but was asking former prisoners to to retell the story of their imprisonment um, for tourists. Um, and I was very, um, you know, I thought it was an important thing to think about, first of all, the ways that they were being asked to tell one very specific story, the story of the ANC, even though they were not necessarily ANC comrades. Um, you know, so that's really how I ended up um, at the University of California, um, Berkeley, thinking I'd be doing a sort of four fields anthropology. I was very naive about, about that. Um, but when I got to the U.S., and with taking coursework and, and you know, trying to get my head around American um, cultural anthropology, I was really, really taken aback by the narratives about Africa. And I use the word Africa here deliberately, even though all of my work is a critique of that very imagined imagine sort of space. But that is exactly how uh, people consistently talked about places on the continent, be they Zimbabwe or Niger or Madagascar or Mozambique, it was always just Africa um, intersecting, of course, with ideas that the US State Department would have singular policies on something called Africa. Um, So I shifted my research again in the sort of realm of sort of education um, at least as I thought but linked to tourism to try and understand whether these imaginings of Africa which seemed very linked to what I considered um, profoundly colonialist sort of British colonial French colonial ideas about Africa so I was surprised to find them so present in the United States Um, and I did my original research uh, early in the 2000s with travelers to southern Africa and I chose southern Africa partly because it was home for me but also because I wanted to work with travelers who were not either doing just the safari game park kind of experience And really, as I discovered, exploring that literature as well as talking to people could be anywhere on the continent. Um, And uh, South Africa at the time was a growing tourist uh, destination and a growing study abroad destination. Um, It was, I think, considered a kind of safe African destination. Um, And there were also a lot of travelers going Um, out of sort of, I don't know if nostalgia is the right word, but certainly a kind of sense of wanting to see a place that they knew only through their uh, anti-apartheid work and activism and wanted to see a transformed society. And certainly, um, you know, that was a big driver. And so I was able to work with all of those groups, um, but especially young study abroad students going to um, mostly Cape Town um, to, to spend a semester or a year um, at at the time it was primarily the University of Cape Town. Um, so, so that's when I really started on a journey that I think turned me into an uh, anthropologist of the United States more than anything else. although. Um, the fact that it was the imaginings of Africa in the U S often means my work is read as African studies, which, um, which I find difficult to navigate sometimes. Um, so yes, yeah, so I ended up writing, um, travel humanitarianism and becoming American Af- in Africa based on that work. Um which really, again, was not what I thought I'd be writing about. I thought I'd be writing about how travel and encounters in Southern Africa changed attitudes, changed ways of thinking. And not surprising, because this is a a classic trope of all travel literature, what travelers learn most about is not the place they visit, but themselves. Um, And in this case, I would say what they learn most about was home um, and what it meant to be American, what it meant to come from the United States. And so I was really not <laughs> anticipating that kind of project, but that is what I tried to, to explore in that work, thinking about what it meant to, to come from a place that was perceived as an imperial power as a dominant power in the world and especially on the continent of Africa. Um, and what that meant then home. And I was most interested in, and in how these travelers navigated their sense of self in relation to the U.S. Um, after they came back and, uh, because I was writing, I think at the beginning of the two thousands and, I think two really profound um, things affected American relationships to the continent at the time. One was the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, which, even during the time of my fieldwork, shifted pretty much all dialogue about, all conversation, debate about the continent away from investment or democracy. Um, or sort of a range of diverse topics that, you know, I would be sort of listening to or participating in um, in the late 90s that mm-hmm. single of HIV AIDS that the U.S. needed to save Africa from. Um, and then, of course, September 11th, 2001, which profoundly... Uh, changed what it meant to be American in the world. And so writing about that, those sorts of um, experiences in in Southern Africa in relation to that, um, send me down this path of thinking about um, what Americanness means in the world and how Africa becomes this place uh, for them to sort of recuperate their sense of goodness in the world, their sense of being um, being a leader in the world. And, and that was really the start of, of sort of 20 years of um, not so much publishing, um, but teaching and talking and <laughs> thinking a great deal uh, in various sort of communities um, about this desire to save um to save Africa and how it dominates conversations in the U.S. Um, and continues to do so, and um, it also began the journey towards making the film um, that I'm working on with the director Cassandra Herman, who was a, a Berkeley journalism um, student when I was doing my fieldwork, and in fact is 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 part of my my first um, project, my first book, um, but we've subsequently been working now for m- many more years than we'd like to admit on this film, when I say Africa, which which was really the space where we were trying to figure out how to address this issue um, around visual representations, a lot of the ways that Africa, of course, is is understood and talked about and, and, and um, seen quote-unquote in the US is through the visual, especially as social media has exploded and, um, and that also happened post that my primary original research. Um, and you know we keep hitting this kind of uh, question to us about the film, which is well, haven't we solved this problem? Don't we now know this is a this is an issue? We shouldn't be talking about Africa in these simplistic tropes. Um, there needs to be the voices of Africans, et cetera, et cetera, and and of course, then we just keep seeing new versions of that narrative and that imagining. Um, and you know, right now, of course, with the the white savior. Um, documentary series on René Bach, if that's how you pronounce the name, I'm not sure, um, I think really highlights how much this is an unresolved conversation. Um, and in many ways, that's why I went back to all of these conversations and the work I've been doing with the film um, and in the classroom where I primarily teach um Global Studies, Development Studies, Humanitarianism, Global Humanitarianism. So um, I'm having constantly um, these conversations with, with young um, young Americans, um, admittedly at a very privileged college, um, discussing their, their role um, in relation to, to Africa. Again, it's always Africa. Um, so the book, I think, came about, um, or white saviorism and popular culture came about, because um, first of all, I was seeing a few years ago, sort of really beginning pre-COVID, a kind of resurgence. It seemed, at least in social media, popular culture, uh, for sort of thinking about U.S. empire and imperialism for thinking about global uh, white supremacy and global blackness, which are all, I think, uh, profoundly implicated in this question um, or sort of the landscape of the white savior. Um, And it felt that a lot of the work that I did 20 years before, um, I mean, I don't want to sound sort of... Um, overly, I don't know, what's the word, to have too much hubris, but it did feel that I was trying to say things 20 years ago that were now much more in the conversation and I really wanted to try and find a way to enter that conversation again and to ground it in a history. I felt like I'd had uh, almost a sort of historical archive in a way of a moment when I think um us understandings and imagines of africa really changed while ironically being exactly the same as it's been for centuries um in a weird way but it's kind of the work that it did um, stayed the same but for different reasons and so it just felt like i wanted to really Um, get a chance to sort of restate some of those things and to retell that history and I must confess it is also very much a a COVID project in the sense that I had um, much put off um, leave um, from teaching um, and would have been doing a couple of years, a couple of summers of of research in South Africa as I've tried to shift my work more there. Um, But that hadn't happened because of COVID. Um, And also I couldn't travel when I first got that leave. It was still, I mean, South Africa um, was not accessible um, for a really long time. Um, And so it was also well... (laughs) <laughs> honestly how do I write a book that I don't have any sort of much new data on and I can't travel anywhere um, and so really thinking about these things that I'd been talking about at conferences and talking about in the classroom seemed like a um, an exciting sort of reflective project for me to do and uh, and that's that's really why I sort of ended up writing in this sphere um, of, I really don't know what to call it, I suppose, cultural studies without the theory, um, without the theoretical lens, you know, which, which was challenging as an, I mean, I'm still a social scientist at heart and um, I tend to want to be working with um, something i might call data i suppose or at least observation um so it was it was uh, definitely a new uh, not entirely new i obviously always paid attention to popular culture and these kinds of spaces of imagining africa um but it was definitely a project that was a book project that was shaped by the sort of structural conditions of the the pandemic at the time
1: Okay. Oh, great um yeah there's a lot there's a lot i want to kind of get into um with with that um it's 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 a really interesting project um and and yeah so i mean i guess i have i have a couple questions um i have a couple questions and i guess i'll try and squeeze them into one and, and hopefully it'll make sense um but but it kind of goes, it kind of gets at what you mentioned about, um, you know, things changing yet staying, uh, exactly the same. And that's something that, that I'm really interested in, um, kind of a background in, in post studies, because, um, you know, obviously, uh, there's a long kind of, uh, there's a, there's a long arc, uh, you know, as you mentioned with, with, uh, you know, uh french and and you know european colonial ideas um that that kind of that, that were employed to kind of um allow colonization to happen so so um you know even the, the works of edward said um kind of the creation of the orient of, of a space that could then be acted upon um and and earlier work about about the kind of construction of africa as a place where europeans and um uh where Europeans and and colonials could could perform, in a sense, um, civility or or superiority. Um, so you know, there's um, from uh, achebe's criticism um, of Conrad and um and you know the kind of, uh, I think even even um, allude uh, to Spivak in, in your book about, uh, saving uh, white men, saving um, brown women from, from brown men. I think I think that's how she put it. Um, and yeah, I mean, so there's there's this kind of like long uh, colonial arc, um, and 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 you know, it, it kind of is different in in different locations, but it's it's uh, the invention of, of a space, and particularly Africa is kind of like this this kind of negative space um, where colonial powers and missionaries could could act and and save um so i guess i guess my i, I guess my question is um is how do you see your work um fitting in with, with those kind of uh, uh larger discourse uh there's kind of like longer historical uh discourses and, and mutations um And then, and then also, how do you, um, yeah, so how do you see your work fitting, fitting in with that? And then if I could just add another layer here, uh, it it would be kind of in reference to your first book, which argues, uh, which was published in in 2010, I I believe that's right. Um, And and uh, so, travel of humanitarianism and becoming American Africa. So, so in that, uh, I have a quote. Um, I, th- I think it's a quote. Um, you you argue that Africa became a space where Americans could find better selves in the wake of nine eleven and and the Iraq War and and the suffering Africans kind of gave Americans a way to recreate themselves as good global citizens. Um, so there, there's there's that um, that, that kind of you know kind of uh was framed around the Iraq war and, and as you mentioned um the, the AIDS epidemic and then this book um is largely you know kind of written during during covid obviously I I think um or, or at least uh you mentioned covid uh, a lot so it's kind of like it's it's it feels like it feels like a much different different time um you know especially with with social media um black lives matter um it 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 feels a lot different than than i guess you know kind of this this iraq war period um when americans were performing that kind of that that iteration of, of good global citizenship um and then it feels like you know we live in kind of a, a different world. So I'm just wondering how how your how your work fits into like into the the longer arc, and how much change you've seen in in how that manifests, um, and how the 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 performance uh, in the creation of Africa and the performance of good global citizenship uh, has changed over I guess the, the last two decades. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I really think of that 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 uh, tension between continuities and discontinuities is very much at the heart of sort of what I was trying to um, unpack and think through. In fact, that I've been trying to think through really for the last um, at least 15 years, I would say, because it is, to my mind, uh, in some ways, a paradox, The, The both on two levels. One, as you say, um, the U.S. at the beginning of 2000s um, was battling at least this perceived external threat, and right now, um, or as I was writing the book, it was battling both a, a virus, um, so I don't know, would you call that an external threat? I'm not sure. Um, and its own internal reckoning uh, with racism, white supremacy, violence, levels of sort of anti-black violence, um, and violence against um, people of color in general. Um, So in some ways, for me, those two moments are not all that different, Um, or the moments that we're in now. Um, and, but the, in, if, if anything's different, um, between, if I looked at the sort of conversations in the early 2000s and the conversations now, the biggest difference is the sort of awareness, um, the self-critique, Um, the kind of calling out of white saviorism, the calling out of sort of a need to, to tell stories about Africa from the U S and the U S or the West in general. Um, so that is really something that I find, um, difficult to get my head around, um, and it seems to, to need some sort of explanation. And that's a lot of trying to think about satire and parody, which was the site at, in which a lot of the critique of the white savior has happened. Um, it you know, was sort of my attempt in a way to try and sort of um, disarticulate that tension in a way. Um, and, of course, the the paradox is, as you say, so it's so long-standing, really. Um, I mean, my work starts with the similarities of how um, Africa is imagined in the U.S. to those sort of colonial, very early, but also 19th-century colonial tropes about Africa and Africans being either... Um, savages or um, desperately um, impoverished people who needed saving or if they weren't impoverished economically were impoverished spiritually and so needed saving by missionaries uh, but they certainly needed to be taught how to be good uh, quote-unquote modern citizens good citizens of sort of capitalism and um, So the stories told then um, and the images more specifically were so continue to be remarkably similar Um, and the reasons I think haven't changed that much in a way. I mean, fundamentally, it's a set of images and representations that is extremely useful Uh, when you want natural resources um, for cheap. Um, And so there is a sort of sadly very cliched, very boring but unbelievably violent reason for why these images persist and these narratives persist, I think, because it does facilitate what continues to be a, a profoundly extractive relationship between um, many African countries and um, their former colonies, as well as the, as well as um, North America. So, so that's always sort of hard to kind of you know, as you said, there's plenty of amazing writing um, and thinking about that particular relationship. Um, in fact, I wished at the time um, of of the of Writing travel human and humanitarianism, I had the courage to kind of claim some sort of word like Orientalism, be it Africanism or you know whatever it is that 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 sort of um, web of of institutions and discourses and structures that that make Africa that place where um, where people get to to seem superior um, in the earlier sort of colonial setting but I as as you said I've argued um, it's maybe became less about superiority and more about sort of being good people being righteous um although I think that was also always there um I mean nothing new under the sun in a way or uh, plus. I change. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Um, but they are, but the differences, so the differences are, are they, I mean, there's the self um, policing um, of social media posts, for example, of, of sort of narratives um, that try to avoid, or at least um, claim to be trying to avoid some of these problematic um, representations but it's still really you know and I try to describe in in white saviorism in popular culture it just doesn't go away um, and so you see certain sort of uh, cosmetic changes the languages change a little but just not as much as you would imagine um, and A lot of the critique, I think, is very, you know, self-serving. I mean, I think it's, and I'm sorry, I might be totally misquoting, if it's the New York Times or the New Yorker review of the film White Savior, you know, that talks about how one of the sort of primary uh, drivers of the critique against René Bach's sort of... um, uh, health and medical nonprofit in Uganda was the um, is it an Instagram account? No white saviors, um, and a lot of the loudest critiques come from the you know a white person, um, and you know that review sort of calls calls out that tension, that paradox. Um, where you have this really convoluted sort of horrible problem that many, many Ugandans are fighting against, have have resisted, have spoken out against, um, of pursuing legal solutions to. um, And yet you have a film that's about not them, but about this white woman who pretended to be a medical um, uh, practitioner to save Ugandan children um, and sort of about the kind of global critique. Um, and again, I haven't seen it, so I don't know, but that's that's just getting from the trailer and, and the reviews and, and things like that. So, that paradox, that tension is so intertwined. And, of course, it's one that with our film and with my writing, it's constantly at the forefront of sort of, who, you know, why am I writing about this? Um, and, uh, you know, that's a constant conversation. Why are we making that, the film we're making? Um, but here are the... Uh, I I have not fully, you know, I think it's a continuing conversation, it's a continuing debate for me, this kind of um, relationship between continuity and discontinuity that we see in imaginings of Africa and in the relationships. But in the end, um, they still support... Um, they're problematic, whether they are meant to be positive or meant to be, you know, or just plain clueless and negative and violent. Um, but they still sustain, I think, a very extractive relationship, whether whether we extracting, um, you know, minerals and other resources or whether we're extracting a feeling of goodness and a feeling of well-being and a feeling of being doing the right thing in the world. Um, I think it's still, these are still um, imaginings and narratives that continue to put the African writers, African artists, African filmmakers, African musicians sort of in the background.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, it's really interesting. And and I, um, I guess I guess the question that I, that I really want to, that I really want to kind of get at is, um, I mean, I know that progress is, is a loaded term, um, but that's kind of the question that I, I want to ask um, you know, because you, you mentioned, um, you know, this, this, this satire, uh, this, this, this kind of awareness and self critique. Um, I think in the, in the book you mentioned, uh, I think Seth Meyers is his, um, his his parody, which is, um, yeah, um, pretty interesting, and and seems to be some somewhat perceptive. Um, and then, and then, I mean, also, uh, it seems like uh, you know, you you quote from uh, Teju Cole. Um, it seems like there's uh, a lot of a lot more. It seems like there's more representation. Um, and, and novelists and filmmakers and, and artists who are kind of engaging with, with those stereotypes and, and perceptions. Um, even the, the debate, the kind of uh, debate around, you know, Afropolitanism, trying to, um, you know, re- rewrite that story or at least undermine it um, and make it seem um, kind of uh, silly um or or at least point to its constructedness, um, or even you know, the danger of a single story, um, which is I, I think probably one of the most popular, you know, TED talks. It's it seems like, I mean, it seems like there there's all of it seems like there's a lot more awareness um, of these issues. and and yeah, I'm just I, I guess I'm just wondering if, um, I mean, so I mean, do you think that that has, contributed i mean i mean is, is the way that uh it i i guess it's probably not not a the same naivety but but yeah I'm, I'm still not sure um but yeah i'm just i'm just wondering how how that might look in terms of uh things like volunteerism and and um you know going to to africa to kind of perform um you know to, to kind of perform white savior-ness um has there been any? Has it contributed to any sort of uh, reflection or, or change in, in kind of how it's practiced, how those things are practiced?
0: I well, I think that that is not much of what I'm trying to figure out through writing about some of these uh, sites of popular culture, um, and especially the parody and the satire, and then these kinds of. Uh, better, supposedly better representations of, of the continent. Um, and I, you know, the answer is both yes and no, although I would more firmly answer no in the sense that this increasing awareness and critique has not shifted. I think the most important sort of sets of of relationships that need to, to shift And that's the paradox, you know, that I'm trying to figure out, you know, where the very same young Americans who just adore Adichie's, you know, uh, single story, TED talk, um, share Teju Cole's, you know, divine kind of definition of the white savior from 2012, um, you know, laugh at sort of uh you know, white savior tropes in sort of American movies. So so you have, you know, and Seth Meyers and and others like uh Key and Peel and, you know, they critiquing uh the the tropes within sort of the American um media landscape where where the the um you know the 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 black person is there again in, in the kind of guys that I would argue Africa plays more, more globally is there to save the white person or make the white person look good. Ironically. So, yes, there is these, you know, many, you know, fabulous, fabulous critiques and great, great critiques from the continent itself. Um, You know, although I'm, in my work I am writing about Americans <laughs> um and writing about whiteness. I'm not writing about Africa or or Africanness. Um so I um I, you know, try and and point people to those voices because that matters, but it's not the work that I do per se. Um but I would but what, what I do argue, and I do believe in many ways is that ironically, those critiques have done less in restraining the sort of exploitative savior complex um, than they have in sort of giving people permission to do it uh, while imagining that they can do it differently. Um, So, yes, I think there are many young people and other people going to Africa to do good um, who are super aware of the critiques, maybe even really aware of the problematic of their own positionality. Um, And they'll talk about it and they'll discuss it and one hopes that it translates into what I'm always asking my students to do, which is to learn a jolly language, read a lot more about the place they're going to, listen, 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 listen. Um, And I think it does to some degree, but as we know from the sort of volunteerism industry um, and other sites of sort of, um, you know, travel to do good, it's not slowing that down. It's also not, you know, is there are there fundamentally different ways in which um, the global north, if you will, is trading with African countries? Um, is there a fundamental shift in um, the sort of conversation at policy levels and really geopolitical levels about? where African nations and African industry should be and who gets to farm there, who gets to extract resources, how people are paid. I'm not seeing that. I mean, it's very hard to sort of draw an easy correlation. Um, Obviously, at the heart of my work is the assumption, rightly or wrongly, that these images really, really matter when it comes to these very, very real um relationships and very real kind of lives on the continent, even though they are imagined and um um but it seems to me that what I'm seeing in these kinds of paroxytical critiques and also more sincere, more earnest critiques, um is a sort of this uh you know as I try and argue in the book is this this giving permission to think that 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 you are exceptional that you are the person who's outside of this system and it is a white saviorism isn't about white saviors individual people or even communities or organizations it's about a a structural system um, that shapes these relationships no matter what we do and we see it repeatedly coming up then in popular culture and, and when sort of important decisions need to be made. Um, and what worries me about this, you know, awareness or, or critique or, you know, these satirical conversations is that it allows us to feel, oh, you, we get it, you know, we, we know better. We are not those people. And, of course, we those people, you know. Uh, of course, we are part of that system, and 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 probably whether we like it or not, no matter how much we try, uh, help it to perpetuate it on the level. So, um, so yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I mean, I think it's important that you know those critiques are there, and people can we can build on them and keep having that conversations and p- keep putting it in front of people. Um, but it's really hard and part, you know, and obviously I'm part of the problem and then I'm writing about popular culture and writing about imaginings and, um, and stories and narratives, which, I mean, I do think are very, very important, but I'm not uh, finding a solution to, you know, global economic inequality, which is, I do argue uh, is per- made possible in a way by these imaginings i don't think and here i would go back to sort of Stuart hall's work on representation the cultural policy of representation replacing terrible bad stereotypes with good ones don't doesn't actually <laughs> do the work of changing the underlying problematic stereotypes um, and i think we really see that here um you know but when we live in a sort of popular culture landscape where, you know, Teju Cole can have a viral um, takedown of the white savior industrial complex. But what, a few years later, two years later, um, Band Aid re-releases Do They Know It's Christmas with even more egregious lyrics Um, and really, really horrifyingly violent video um, what, you know, what has changed?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so, I mean, it is, I guess it is possible that the, the, the irony and and the parody kind of allows uh, a self-awareness that it creates a distance, a distancing that that kind of allows you and, an awareness that, that just allows it to kind of, done anyways um you can kind of do do the thing as long as you're aware of uh yeah yeah no that's really interesting um and yeah um so i guess i guess in terms of you you did kind of mention um things things that might be uh useful for um for students uh, or you know um yeah, for for students or, or anyone else who uh, would like to actually um, do do some some good, I guess, or, or you know, you know, whatever that means, um, but let's kind of contribute in some way without necessarily reinforcing um, all of these structures that that um, they may or may not um, be aware of or or uh, may be interested in kind of dismantling. Um so yeah as 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 I was uh I, I don't know, I I don't know if that's you know how much, how far that gets as a solution but um I was reading uh one as I was preparing for for the interview I was re- uh, reading an article called ending white saviorism in in study abroad um and what they suggested was was rather than sending students to Uh, you know impoverished locations um and trying to solve problems uh they say that we should be sending students to model countries so and i thought that was that was really interesting um like sending students uh to improve for example gender equality in the u.s sending students to norway or sweden um who who kind of had made made progress and then those bringing those, uh, bringing those um, policies and ideas uh, back home, I guess um, as a way to improve uh, you know local problems. Um, that was something that I found interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I don't know if that um, is persuasive to you or, or if you uh, if you found that, that anything else has has been effective,
0: um uh... uh well that's <laughs> that's shocking to me that's really problematic to me because underlying I mean I think study abroad is great I think if you have the privilege and the the possibility to travel absolutely travel if you but most importantly you know the what tra- what what study abroad generally has been historically is to go learn about somewhere else, to go learn from other people. And um, And I you know, it really struck me. part of why I started on this route well, on this kind of route is that it struck me how uh, study abroad, not volunteering, not service learning, study abroad in South Africa always had a service component. Which I don't think has ever been the case when students have gone to Florence or, or Oslo, you know, um, or Berlin or whatever. So, so really, the you know, the critique makes sense in a way in that why, why are students taking this this enormous privilege where they could actually learn from other people and sort of deciding to tell th- them everything they know. don't know um but it's so intriguing that they think the solution is to go listen to yes you know a scandinavian country with fabulous maternity leave and free education and whatever um those students could learn just as much from any african country um like, that's so odd to me. Like, if stu- if they want to go to Kenya to really learn about Kenya, go for it, you know. Um, and yes, I bet if they're really listening and really paying attention, they might see, like, all countries right now, I think, is there anywhere in the world that isn't completely messed up? Um, there will be problems, but... How do people there articulate those problems? But there'll also be things that are like, wow, you know, how are Americans so blind to these kinds of social norms or social institutions um, that matter? Um, How are people doing it, um, you know, there? How are they dealing with with these problems there? And why not go to uh, Chile or Bangladesh or... um, you know, Kiribati uh, or whatever to to learn that. I mean, why, that's like, why? I'm like really horrified by that. It's like exactly the truth I'm talking about. And it's so fascinating. I mean, I learned one of the, the coming, you know, living, I mean, I still can say I lived and lived and worked most of my life in South Africa. And, um, you know having this enormous privilege of living and working through a massive political transition and social transition you know we we always we knew of course that one of the biggest challenges South Africa had was education because when you've got a system that educates 14% of your population and now you suddenly have to try educate 100% of it that's that's going to be challenging and And South Africans were very quick to talk about the financial uh, challenges. You know, it's so expensive, how are we going to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I really didn't question that. You know, it's like it's hard because of the lack of money. And then when I went to California for the first time and heard exactly the same conversations about education, oh, it's, first of all, incredibly inequitable. People, young Californians are not getting educated. Um, They don't have access to the sorts of resources that, that some Californians have, et cetera, et cetera. And then to hear people say, oh, but it's so expensive, we can't afford it. I'm like, at the time, California had the fourth largest GDP on the planet. And it was a fabulous lesson for me because it was like, Okay, it's not money. It's what people value, what people are prepared to put political will behind. Californians have more than enough money to educate, as I think does the US, to educate all of their citizens and non citizens really well. They choose not to spend that money. And I think when, you know, thinking, I don't know, I thought about that in terms of sort of, going somewhere else and seeing, you know, your world from a different perspective. Of course, that's a really powerful, wonderful thing. And I want Americans especially to do that because they don't do it enough. Um, But traveling, uh, you know, traveling because you think you can somehow offer something. I mean, that's just nonsense. It's like, Get over yourself, like really. That just should be shut down, frankly. Um, now, you know, if you went and you said, if you go to do that because that's the system and the structure that allows you to travel. I get it; it's a massive industry. You know, um, it supports a lot of travel. Um, ask, ask, and listen. You know, what is it that you want? And now, most of the time, it's going to be boring. You know, when I work for. Um, a adult basic education NGO in Pretoria, we struggled so much to get funding just to keep the lights on. But we could get a million dollars to go to Mozambique and like teach people how what it's like to be poor. Which I'm very glad to say that my wonderful CEO uh, Andrew Miller turned that down. But so we were constantly scrambling to, to define our work in terms of whatever the fashionable, you know, aid language was and what would our pro- projects look like to get money. Meanwhile, we had this amazing model of adult basic education uh, that worked incredibly successfully, but we couldn't just get funding for that. and We couldn't get funding, you know, to just have a building and have offices. Um, And I think that's the story of so much work being done um, in the aid and volunteer industry where it's always these sorts of external um, um, projects and ways of intervening that are completely determined in New York or DC or London or Geneva or Brussels or whatever. Um, And there's this, fascinating to me fear of just giving institutions i don't mean uh you know the sort of just the direct funding model but you know giving institutions who are doing the work money you know and then not making it necessary for them to scale up and do the entire continent because apparently the problem you have in you know kailitsha cape town which you've Solved beautifully through sort of grounded long-term community-based work is somehow going to be translatable to, you know, Mogadishu or, um, um, Accra or whatever. So, so I think there are, there are, I mean, I mean, I just, what I, what i find so complicated about answering you know my students as well and and other people sort of well, what should we do what should we do i mean it's it's almost too easy we know what we need to do you know like shut up and listen to begin with but also the real work i mean for you know the real real work is is the boring tedious work of institutional change here in your own country I mean you cannot think that it's worthwhile to just keep perpetuating a system where you have this phenomenally extractive violent economic inequality that is you know sort of structurally so hard to budge and you keep doing that you don't question that but then you're going to send you know, a band-aid <laughs> excuse the pun to um to this to this place. You know, when you have companies that should in theory be held accountable by the US government, you know, not paying decent salaries where their factories are, not pay you know, that doesn't seem complicated to me. I understand ideologically and policy wise it's profoundly complicated and difficult to change. But the actual solutions never seem that complicated, you know, go and be respectful and listen or change, um, you know, international relations. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So both uh, seemingly impossible, but also meticulously simple. Yeah.
1: No, that was a great, that was a great answer. Um, and I, I will not link to this article, uh, in, in the notes.
0: <laughs> um, no,
1: no, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually really, I'm glad that I was able to, to elicit that because that was, uh, I think really, really insightful. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that, that you're right. That ties to, um, you know, not, not only, uh, not, not only uh representations but how representations inform um, you know kind of like like what looks uh good for for um investing or what looks in good for policy uh, what looks good for policy I mean, and and how those have you know kind of like real real um uh impacts on on how actually useful things can get done um and, yeah I mean and and that's that's so interesting how that you know that ties directly how uh how the person giving the money or doing the action wants to be perceived and and wants to you know how how it's how that's like the the, the focal point um, rather than you know rather than anything else um but but yeah so um no that was that was really interesting um and I guess um, I did want to. I did want to ask you um, about about your documentary because um, I know you mentioned it a, a lot, uh, a, few, uh, a few times in the book, um, and you also mentioned uh, mentioned it here. So I just wanted to, to kind of ask you about that. I actually haven't been able to find it. Um, I was looking for it because it looks and sounds really interesting, but but I haven't haven't been able to locate it. So yeah, I was um, was wondering if you just wanted to to say a little bit about that. Um, If it's been completed yet or if you're still working on (laughs) it.
0: Yeah, sadly, I mean, I hope you found the website at least. There is a very out-of-date trailer there, um, just when I say Africa. Um, It is not completed, which is why you can't find it, although I will um, remind me and I will send you a link because I would love your comments on it. Um, So it is in post-production, Um, it started, as I said, many years ago with a conversation with Cassandra Herman, who is a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, um, about this challenge of sort of using a visual media, like could we use a visual medium to challenge visual uh, representations of the continent and what would that look like? And we were very inspired then by the late Benyavango Inanna's essay um, How to Write About Africa which is still absolutely uh, on point. Um, It's really a brilliant articulation of of those tropes that that just keep coming back. You know, in slightly different forms but they keep coming back. Um, And, you know, I always love the story he would tell. And and I think when he got asked to write a sort of uh, updated version, he was, you know, gave this really angry spiel um, about this, um, where he would receive manuscripts from people saying, well, have I followed your instructions correctly? That is the problem with parody. It doesn't always hit home. Um, But he came on board really early on as a supporter of the film, which was amazing for us. And for a long time it was called How to Make a Film About Africa. Um and uh you know, we felt again because of the way parody doesn't always uh um hit uh that changed. Um and so we started really um talking to people like Benyavanga, talking to the uh, South African sociologist, uh, Zini Magubane, who works at, uh, Teachers at Boston College, and who'd written really fabulous work on um, the global funds, Bono's, you know, product red campaign in the early two thousand, mid 2000s. Um, and just trying to figure out like, what would a, what would a film that was compelling and um, you know, not a talking heads film, not a kind of preachy, polemical film, but really sort of trying to try unpack why it is that um, Westerners go back to these tropes and the work that they do. And so it had many iterations. We've uh, met a long time ago before he became, before, in fact, he had his own film made about him uh, called Softy, documentary film called Softy. Uh, Boniface Mwangi came on board because he, because of his photographic work. He he was a photographer. Now he's very much more of an activist, um, but he was a photographer. He was using his photographs of the post-election violence in Kenya to to educate and talk to Kenyans about um, the narratives about ethnic difference and 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 violence um and uh so he seemed like a great interlocutor for sort of i think one of the messages the film is trying to put across which is that all of the things we think we need to solve they've been solved by people in their own communities on the on on the continent um but of course we didn't want to this was not a film about African solving problems, you know, that it, it it's very much a film about the Westerner who wants to save Africa. Um, it unpacks, um, I think it does a great job of unpacking the colonial history that you described earlier, um, of thinking about structural adjustment. We really are grateful to Pinyavanga Wainana for really putting that in the forefront of, of his conversation. You know, that poverty, that that inequalities um, between African countries and and the West or North, you know, are not the product of those countries, you know, policies and cultures, and but the product of these global sort of economic forces and decisions and policies. So, so it has all of that, you know, while also um, really mostly examining the kind of Ways um, this desire appeals to and is so attractive to to Americans and other Westerners. So Pippa Biddle, whose whose work and book you might know, um, also came on very early on. You know, um, to talk about her own sort of realization of how her own experience doing volunteer service work in Tanzania. Uh, you know what that meant to people there and 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 why she would do it um so it's been you know I think we have a really really good film that that I think um isn't just saying this is what's wrong with um these representations and these narratives and this sort of the site of sort of wanting to save Africa, but sort of why and um, what sort of questions you need to ask. Um, so we love it. Uh, every teacher I've ever shown it to is like, can I please have it for my classroom? <laughs> uh, you know, college and high school. Um, um, mm. But we are, you know, we also critique, critiquing these sorts of global Representational sites of representation, which includes Band Aid, which, which includes, you know, the we, you know, Save the Children. Um, when we were first fundraising for it, we did get uh, cease and desist lawyers' letters because uh, we are critical of some of these, um, these kinds of uh, institutionalized Save Africa uh, groups. Um, and so we, we kind of stalled right now mostly around legal permissions. I'm going to just put that out there. We need money to pay a lawyer to help us. Um, we're still trying to raise money for that sort of final final push. Um, but we feel, you know, it's really interesting now with these other critique. You know, every now and then there's this resurgence of this critique of white saviorism. And then we sort of look at each other and go, oh, our story is told, the story is told, we don't have anything new to say, but, you know, we we do, I think, have a film that does something that none of those critiques do. I mean, one, it really is about examining ourselves um, and what it is we're doing, but without this kind of, you know, one person is to blame and let's take them down kind of thing. It really is about thinking about the systemic issues um, you know, and putting those in conversation with, um, um, people like Binyavango and Boniface, um, and uh, yeah, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really is, a, a documentary that we know people really want mostly I, th- I think in the classroom, to be honest, um, but it does, um, and also of course, to we did some work with, um, um, uh, oh, oh, what's that? Gosh, I'm blanking. Um, it's Africa. It's, 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 a sort of a social media site to, to critique African narratives. Um, not Africa as a country, although we do Sean. Jacobs, who founded Africa as a country, is one of our producers. Um, Oh, my gosh. I'm totally blanking. Um, But, uh, you know, we worked with them to sort of put together a proposal to take this kind of film into um, uh, humanitarian organizations, development organizations, to really foster conversations there. Because I think it is a really good shorthand for a lot of complicated issues um and can can raise really productive questions. We have wonderful conversations with the sort of um with How Matters, which is a organization that is trying to really trying to do anti-colonial development um and humanitarian work, which is fantastic. Um oh my gosh, yeah. Thinking, african no bull or something. It's like Africa no yeah. Anyway. Um, so, so the film I think, yeah, it needs to get out there. We need to get it out there. People, need- <laughs> people need to see it, but we need money. So there you go.
1: <laughs> right, great. Um, yeah, I no, that's so- that sounds. Uh, I would love to use that in the classroom. Um, that sounds great. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I can, when you do, um, when you do release it, I can, uh, absolutely put that in, in the notes to the podcast. I'm sure listeners would, would appreciate that. Um, and then, and then, yeah, um, if there's any other links, uh, feel free to, to send them over. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been, it's really been a pleasure speaking to you I and,
0: it was good thank to <laughs> to unpack some of the thinking you know thank you